inside of those products, it takes one second to identify every person that doesn't have a mortgage. And it takes you maybe 15 seconds to be able to pull up the last deed that was recorded on their property to figure out how their vesting was, the legal description. Probably within that one minute, they could take that document, load it into Adobe Pro, change the vesting from the current owner to the new owner, then bring that into the county recorder's office. And as long as it all the spaces are correct, it checks the box, then legally they accept the document. You know, they'll pass the document through, the new fraudster owns the property, they get their cash and they disappear. But the person that's left behind is the lawful homeowner, all right? And, and it's their job and it's their duty to defend um, the fact that they're the lawful owners of that property. And so really we wanted to be able to solve that gap. If I do my job correctly as a podcast host, I pull out new information and surprises out of every single guest. This episode takes it to a whole new level. Every single topic, every single question that I talk about with our guest today, Ryan Marshall, the founder and CEO of Equity Protect, pulls out new information that I never could have anticipated. Now I'd read his bio, I knew about his history, but man, does he bring some curveballs on his history, how he succeeded and failed in the industry, the impacts of the great financial crisis on his professional life, and what led him to the business that he is operating today, Equity Protect, which seeks to solve problems in deed and title theft. This is a very interesting business, but it only happens. This entrepreneurial journey only arrives at this point with the very unique background that Ryan spotlights in our conversation and all the twists and turns and surprises that he reveals during our podcast today. I hope you enjoy this episode with Ryan Marshall, founder of Equity Protect. Ryan, welcome to Housing News. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we had to we had to jam this in on scheduling. I know both of us are pretty busy. I've been on the road for business and um, and you have a trip coming up and it sounds like an interesting one. Give us a glimpse into why we had to get this episode scheduled and recorded today because uh, it sounds like you're about to go off the grid. Right. So I don't know. After I had a financial crash in 2008, I decided that money wasn't my fulfillment. And I decided that, you know, one of those things was to go out and find fulfillment. One of the crazy things that I decided to do on a dare was to feed my family for an entire year off of hunted protein alone. And so now every single year for 45 days to 60 days, depending on how long it takes me to harvest uh, all of the animals that I need for the next year, I'm, I'm off the grid. And so in addition to that, I've, I've scheduled two weeks out of the 45 days to go hunting with a bunch of autistic kids. So I bring them up to the mountains and I hunt with them and I have crazy stories with autistic kids and hunting elk and antelope and deer, which is pretty awesome. That's incredible. So where is home for you? So I currently, so I sold a company two years ago, which forced me to move to Nevada for tax purposes. And so now I live uh, back where I originated from, which is Tahoe, Reno area. Okay. Pretty cool. So, okay. So harvesting, um, hunted protein. So you mentioned deer and elk. I imagine you probably have more deep freezers than another human being I know. So crazy enough, uh, Heather, my, uh, longtime girlfriend for 15 or 16 years, the agreement when we did the dare was she had to be able to prepare 
the animals so it didn't taste like absolute crap. And so we follow game chefs now like Hank Shaw and a couple other interesting people. We also do all of our own chichuterie, which are dried salamis and alpine hams and stuff that we actually salt and uh, dry out ourselves. And that's, yeah, that's what we do. Wow. That's our protein for the year. Yeah. Okay. Can I like invite myself to your house in like the Reno Tahoe area, <laughs> like to, 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 to check out this, check this out at some point? Absolutely. It has to be after December 15th or so, but yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, or, um, Mike Simonson who runs Altos research within our, our business HW media. He, um, he also, uh, has a place out in that area. So I might, I might send Mike, um, by, uh, I think Mike, you know, likes the clean eating too. So, um, it might, might be an interest there. I'll tell him to listen to this episode. Yeah. All right. So that's an incredible pass. So what was the, a few follow-up questions. What was the business you sold two years ago? And, um, and then let's go from there. So, uh, two years ago, I sold a data company called Benutech. Benutech was a, uh, national aggregation company. We specialized in, uh, um, I want to say lead generation for real estate brokers, lenders, and title companies, right? We're kind of keeping the penetration and the sticky points between all three of those verticals. And so we went out and we mined divorce data, probate data. We kind of brought all of this together when data wasn't really a sexy word, which was, you know, back in around 2010. And um, I sold that company about two years ago to Voxter Analytics and, and that because of tax reasons, it forced me to move to Nevada and I've been here for two years. <laughs> nice. Yeah. The, nothing wrong with the, uh, the, the state stays without income tax. So don't, right. don't blame me there. Um, we were based in Texas. So a benefit that we get here as well. Um, so how, how'd that transition into, into Voxter go and, and what's the story of Benetech today? Um, so, uh, Benutech still exists within Voxter. So they're still very much focused on title penetration, helping the title industry, um, with all of their research tools, also real estate agents and investors, right? They're big on lead generation still with them. Um, transition into Voxter was, uh, interesting. Um, I'm more of an entrepreneur facing, right? If something has to get done, you know, you get it done and kind of moving into a corporate environment. There was obviously a, a pretty big shift for me at, at, at that point. In October, there was a parting of ways. I think the, I think what was said was a friction at the top. I think that, that that's how they, they best described it. And so I took a vacation from Voxter for a couple months starting in uh, October. So October, November, December, January-ish. And then since then, I've been trying to help some of the executives over there um, kind of reshape the narrative of what Voxter is, kind of how it's going forward. Um, But during that time, my departure from Voxter, I was able to kind of sit back and really think about what was my next thing, right? What was it that I was really passionate about and kind of move forward in in a direction, right? I'm not one to sit at home and do nothing. And so... um, I kind of noticed that there was a uh, an interesting spot with fraud in general, right? I mean, you had COVID that just happened. You had a lot of people sitting at home finding unique ways to rip people off. Um, you had some of the competitors in that deed fraud space that are all over the media right now, basically educating fraudsters on how to commit the crime. And there really was no there was no prevention to the crime at all, right? Nobody was really addressing the core issues or even educating people on how it even existed. And so um, going back to my day to days and selling real estate days out of my car I, uh, and owning a mortgage company, I remember for with reverse mortgages, we always had a second lien, 
after every reverse mortgage, which basically precluded or discouraged people from uh, doing thirds, fourths, and fifths on those homes, right? And so using that same idea, and again, we're on evolution like 155, right? But version one was, what about if we genuinely, if we recorded a lien, made the homeowner the person that could lock and unlock that lien, right? Instead of a lender, make it a homeowner. And then, um, and then go from there, right? The title company now, forward-facing, has to now get permission from the lawful owner. There wasn't sending a postcard to their mailing address or you know, trying to catch them if there was a sign out front or all of these other kind of fraud prevention things that you see today. And so that's kind of the evolution of what Equity Protect became was how could we make a, a, a solid product that benefited everybody? And that's kind of what we're about. Okay, so we're going to get deep into to equity protect, but I, I want to learn, still want to learn a little more about the man Ryan Marshall before we uh, before we move into the business that is that is equity protect. So coming back to your your hunting and foraging story, you mentioned that you're about to take a group of autistic children out to, to participate in this process. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Why autism has a has a place in your heart? Like, t- tell us about why that came together. So I, so believe it or not, I started hunting. I picked up a gun for the first time in my uh, mid, uh, mid 30, I think 34, 35, right? Lived in California and hunting just really wasn't a family tradition. Again, I did it based off of a dare. And um, that's pretty rare. I feel like most people I know that are into hunting, it's like family legacy. Like their grandfather taught their dad and their dad taught them. Like, um, I don't know if my dad's ever picked up a gun. So you can guess that um, that hunting is not in my weekend activity list. But uh, I have killed a turkey and that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And to be honest with you, when I first started doing it, I was really uncomfortable, right? I mean, the first few months of my exercise, um, I hired one of the West Coast trappers for the federal, from the federal government. I hired him for a weekend, and I basically said, teach me everything that you know. And so he takes me on the third day. I go out in the field with him, and uh, believe it or not, I sit on this ridge for probably two hours, and I, I wouldn't take the shot. I would not kill the animal. I just had – I genuinely had a hard time with killing anything. And so um, because I didn't want to go back home and tell Heather that I was going to renege on the dare, I finally took the shot moment um the animal went down of course i felt mortified and uh the guy that i was with you know i I said oh you know you you can have my harvest you can take it you know i don't want to do it because i i just i just felt horrible he he looked at me and he said you know uh, i don't eat wild pig and so now i'm in this weird spot where i you know i'm not about to leave this animal to die right or you know you know out there in the on the field so we take the skin off of it and we kind of do the most disgusting part of out of hunting. And the moment that we get it back to his ranch and we hang it up, it looks like something that you would buy from a butcher. And so anyway, so it was pretty incredible. And at that point I kind of started putting kind of connecting all the dots together. And then um, for the first couple of years, we also made all of our own homemade soap and I used all the skins and I made these really cool jackets. And I mean, it was kind of a cool experience for the first year, um, first, first year, second year. And so then at, at some point, um, since I don't have any friends that hunted, all I did was hunt alone. And so, um, the first year that I started putting in for all of the tags, it's like a lottery in all of the States in order to get tags to go hunting. Um, I put in a tag for a Buffalo in the Henry mountains in Utah first year ever. And I drew it, right. I mean, people wait 20 and 30 years for this draw. And so I get a call from fish and game in Utah and they say, um, you know, congratulations, you know, uh, you know, you know, we want to get you prepared and how long you've been hunting and what's your experience. And I told the guy, 
I've been hunting for like 12 months. I, I don't even know the first thing about where to even go or what to do, right? And so he recommended that I contact, uh, at that time, it was the undersheriff in the county that I was hunting in. And so I contacted him and uh, they basically took me out. Well, well, believe it or not, I became good friends with the whole town because the town is you know, probably about a thousand people. And inside of that town, there's a population of, of autistic kids now. And so now instead of going out hunting alone, um, I make a choice to go hunt with their families and I take their kids out and, you know, they make us grilled cheese sandwiches and, you know, it, it really is an incredible time. So I spent two of my 45, two weeks out of my 45 days hanging out with them. Very cool. And so for two weeks, are you doing like off the grid camping or like, what's the, what does two weeks look like? So the two weeks with the autistic kids, um, it, we set up kind of military tents with, you know, stoves and stuff like that. So we always have a place to come back and hang out for the day. Um, the rest of my hunting is you generally me alone. It's completely off the grid, it's sleeping on the ground. Um, I either have a rifle bow or a muzzleloader. Yeah. I take it serious for 45 or 60 days and it's enough, enough, uh, protein to feed the family for a year. That's cool. I, um, tying this back to like connections and housing, I had the opportunity to have dinner with uh, Jason Nikosha at our Gathering of Eagles event this summer. Jason's at Better Homes and Gardens and he runs a um <clears throat> an Instagram account, but I mean it's his like it's his passion uh, called Overland Eats and he does like off-roading in the in in Colorado and then like prepares pretty awesome meals um like in the mountains. So I don't know about his like I don't know about his hunting habit, habits, but he does prepare some pretty awesome food while off-roading in awesome territories. Uh, I feel like you and Jason might have some fun conversations. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Bring it back. Equity protect. We have this, this background. You, you mentioned that you went from selling real estate, 18 years old, living out of your car. Um, you went on to help found a, a direct mortgage lender, a net branch lender. You mentioned reverse mortgages. Was this lender reverse focused? No, we weren't. So, um, okay. yeah, no, we weren't. So I started selling real estate out of my car the day I turned 18. Uh, I was basically in a restaurant in South Lake Tahoe, California. And, uh, Took my test when I turned 18. This was back in the day when you had to call in and see if you passed the test. So it was like a week maybe after I turned 18. Uh, find out that day that I passed the exam. And working in a fine dining restaurant, you kind of you know associate with diff- different people. And at that time, I um, had a, struck up a conversation with a guy named Floyd Wickman, which I don't even know if he's still alive. But he used to do real estate coaching. And he did a, a program called The Sweat Hogs. And so as I'm having this conversation with him, he says, um, uh, you know, I ask him, you know, if you were to sell real estate, you know, what, what, you know, what, what advice do you have for me? And he basically said, if I were to sell real estate anywhere in the world, I'd go to Orange County, California. Oh, okay. Where's that? <laughs> right. I don't, didn't even know where Orange County, California was. Right. And so um, I came back the next day and the, my maitre d' at the time was there for 35 years and he took me aside and he said, Hey, I, you know, Ryan, I just want to let you know, I put, I put your notice in, you know, you have two weeks left here at uh, Caesars, right? At the time it was Caesars Tahoe. And I'm thinking I have the greatest life in the world, right? I sleep all day. I work swing shift, you know, I'm out all night. What are you talking about? Right. And so he said, you know, I don't want you to, 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 you know, wake up 35 years from now, like I did. And you're still stuck here at a restaurant. So, um, you know, there you go. So two weeks later, I packed up my Mazda 323. I head to Orange County, California. I knew nobody. I knew nothing. I had a, I had a piece of paper that said I could sell real estate. I didn't even know how to sell real estate, right? 
And so, um, so that's kind of how it started. I went to literally every real estate brokerage in Newport Beach, Irvine, and Huntington Beach. Not one person would hire me, right? I mean, I was literally an 18-year-old kid, you know, pimples all over my face, bleach tips in my hair, right? Because I snowboarded all day in Tahoe. And, you know, here these guys are like, you want to do what? And, um, and so finally, I ended up uh, hooking up with Remax Real Estate Services. And back then, obviously, you had a desk fee. And uh, I remember distinctively the manager coming out and his wife coming out, kind of like, who the hell is this kid, right? And, um, and he said, yeah, I'll give you a shot for six months. And uh, he gave me a shot for six months. He said, you know, I won't charge you a phone or a desk fee. It's called uh, Road to Success was what the program was called. And he said, you know, it's probably against my greater judgment, but for some reason, something's telling me to give you a shot. So um, I, I started there. I ended up getting involved with the Mike Ferry organization, which at the time it was Matthew, Mike, um, Tom, Michelle Ferry, Patrick Ferry, Bill Pipes, kind of that whole, the, the original core of that group. And I learned some of the best lessons ever in my life. And I mean, I, I owe a lot of my success to the lessons or the things that they had me do at the time. Um, when, even before I could drink a glass of alcohol, my best year ever, I did 88 sides. Um, I had a couple people working with me. Um, and of course I was the most arrogant son of a bitch you'd ever meet in your life. I decided to open a mortgage company. And so at the time, my mortgage broker and myself, did you, did you end the real estate career to start a mortgage company or was this a supplement to what you were already building in the real estate industry? It was designed to be a supplement, right? It was just the mo. It was the natural progression, right? Yeah. And so um, we ended up uh, uh, getting licensed in all in I don't know thirty eight or forty states nationwide. Um, what, what year is this? Give, give us some context of where we are. Two thousand. Okay. Right. And um, at this point, you know, the tagline was "Buy a house with your mouse," and you know, this was in the two thousands. I mean, you're not buying houses with your mouse yeah. at the time, you know. And Fairly so, are today. yeah, well, a little bit ahead of the time, right? And so, um, at some point, the home ownership office came in and basically didn't like the way that we were compensating loan officers. And this was at a time when you were doing net branching, and there was a lot of internal control and and things that just probably weren't um, as sufficient as they should have been, or they are today. And so, um, the choice was made that I would open up a wholesale mortgage company. And so, at that point. I hooked up with the Guggenheim family, which became Natty Mac, Bruce Holster, that group. And we would um, buy uh, whole loans and we would do um, mini bulks and bulks with Credit Suisse, Nomura, DLJ, et cetera. And then um, in, you asked about FHA loans. So a big thing of our, of our practice was FHA loans or FHA insured loans. Not so much the reverse mortgages, although we did have the credit counsel or the reverse counseling stuff in place. It was more streamlines. We were more of a streamline shop at the time. Um, and in 2008, when the bust happened, it happened. And I lost everything. And I literally started from scratch. And so... Um, so you were like, I mean, this is ground zero, like real estate brokerage, mortgage lender in oh yeah. Orange County. And... Um, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, every, it, was, it, was, it was the end, right? And all of the people that you th- thought were your friends... Definitely we're not your friends, right? And so so in 2008, I one of I ended up selling a house to one of the founders of the World of Warcraft. And um, he walked by my house with his dog because I lived in downtown Huntington and he was like, God, you what happened? Right? I mean, you were like this vibrant person and you know, where, where, what what's going on? 
So I kind of explained the situation, right? We have private investigators that are out front of my house now because they think that somehow I was, you know, hiding money or funds. He, for the, for a greater part of six months to eight months, I learned how to program or write software, you know, in a dark closet. And I uh, started Benutech and we, you know, I just, I decided to jump into the data world because I thought that it was, again, largely underestimated. And I really thought that data was kind of the knowledge and the fuel that was going to be kind of perpetuate us into, you know, the evolution of what we see today. And so um, I opened up Benutech and decided that I would focus, I would never be back in the mortgage industry, but I would have something that would be able to, to, you know, help assist with it. Cause that was my background. And that's how I started Benutech. As you like cleaned up the, the mess coming out of 2008, how did you mention private investigators? Like how, how did all that work out? Like where did, where'd you go from a place of having PIs in front of your house to like moving on with your life? It was rough. It was a rough go for about two years. So I became state witness for, I want to say 20 to 30 uh, deals in the country. So I was, you know, uh, expert witnesses on how, you know, how, how we would catch mortgage fraud, what people were doing at the time, et cetera. Um, and really it was, it was a struggle. I mean, I've literally lost everything. So believe it or not, um, one of and the reason why I got into the title industry, awkwardly enough, was um, we were peddling the information through my original real estate broker who hired me back then. Um, and he's, he's continued to be a mentor. And one of the real estate brokerages ended up saying, hey, you need to talk to um, this title rep, right? And I'm like, oh, what, you know, ooh, title reps could be free salespeople for us, right? Ooh, that's a good idea. And so um, I ended up connecting with the title rep. The title rep ended, ended up connecting me with the founder of uh, Southland Title at the time, who's a big F&F executive now. He walked into my office. It was, a, it was in a garage, literally, right? There was about 10 people that had followed me from direct lender to IRES at the time to now Benutech. And so here we are in this, this warehouse with one little bathroom, literally in the middle of our office, right? All of our desks and everything are spread out. And um, this guy comes in and he's like, you know, I think you're onto something. And I'm like, you do? I'm not accepting any money from anybody. I don't want any investments. You know, I don't want the liability. At this point, I'm like totally liability adverse or, you know, risk adverse. And so um, he says, you know, can I talk to you for a second? I'm like, okay. So we go out and, uh, and he opens up his Mercedes, opens the back trunk, gets his checkbook out. And he writes me a check for $50,000. And at the time I'm like, I start bawling. I'm like, I don't even know what else I, I, you know, I can't accept this. There's no way, you know, and I, and, and so he walks into my office, he hands the check to my partner and he says, hold on to it. If you guys need it at any point in the future, let me know. And so that kind of became the future of Benutech. So we did deposit the funds because even despite, you know, my stubbornness, my partner did deposit it, sat in a savings account until the very end. And, uh, and that person has become a huge influence in, in kind of my journey ever since. And so that's kind of how Benutech started. I mean, the, the entrepreneur and like uh, guy who's raised money in me, um, what percent of Benutech did he get for that 50K considering he came in at such a critical time? So we didn't accept any funds. Um, he ended up coming in, uh, at a founder level. So he still was probably around a 10%. Uh, he did end up putting capital in because we ended up getting a data file license. When, when data quick transferred over to core logic, we decided to upgrade our file. There was some other stuff that went on. He personally said he wanted to do it. And of course, because the company, I mean, even though the company, 
kind of a long story. We ended up giving him credit for that, for that money, but um, it was about 10% is what he ended up with at the end. That's it's incredible when like an opportunity shows up at your doorstep, but like kind of like a, an odd interaction of like someone showing up and going to the trunk of a car and getting a check um, was like, yeah. it sounded like, but it sounds like you were kind of in a place though, where you weren't like, it was, it was that big of a vote of confidence that you weren't worried about this weird checkbook in the trunk of a car and it's something. Right. <laughs> right. And what's funny too, back then was I was, you know, during my mortgage days and real estate days, I was so into personal development. I mean, I hired Tony Robbins. I was doing platinum partnership for years. Right. And the thing that was always missing from my life was fulfillment. I was, the more I had, the less fulfilled I had, I was right. And so my next go around, it was all about fulfillment. No matter what I did, it wasn't about the money. It was about the hunt. It was about the journey. It was about being able to give back. And so, um, really that's, that's really why I am here today. I just genuinely want to make a difference. Okay. Let's fast forward. Uh, 2022, 2023, we're in an environment where the mortgage industry just came off a, a sugar high of low interest rates and a lot of demand on the back end of those types of environments. We often see increased fraud and we're in this environment today where we have cybersecurity threats, fraudsters out there trying to take advantage of home buyers, um, issues and title that have a lot of different complexions, um, income and asset verification, fraud issues, a lot, a lot of problems to be solved in housing today. You have picked one of those. So tell us about Equity Protect. So again, I think that this was one of the underserved areas in the industry, right? Where it's obviously an increasing fraud that's happening. Um, first of all, for the, I don't know if, if everybody even knows what deed fraud is. Maybe I can explain what deed fraud is. So Essentially, what happens is, is during COVID, everybody was kind of out there online starting to figure out um, what information they could uncover about people, right? One of those entry points or one of the sensitive spots, in my opinion, are homeowners that don't have mortgages, right? They go to products uh, that I developed, like Title Toolbox, Rebo Gateway, RIA, et cetera. And inside of those products, it takes one second to identify every person that doesn't have a mortgage. And it takes you maybe 15 seconds to be able to pull up the last deed that was recorded on their property to figure out how their vesting was, the legal description, um, et cetera. And so probably within that one minute, they could take that document, load it into Adobe Pro, change the vesting from the current owner to the new owner, then bring that into the county recorder's office. And as long as it, all the spaces are correct, it checks the box. They pick a document that doesn't have a notary stamp that's been expired, then then legally they accept the document and, you know, they'll pass the document through the new fraudster owns the property. And then what they do is because um, a lot of the mortgage lenders out there are, you know, I don't want to say they're desperate for volume, but they're looking for, you know, real, you know, they're looking for loans. Um certain things kind of get get overlooked, right? And so they'll have an ID, they'll have all the proper things, but they won't necessarily have all the fraud protection measures that are in place. They'll get a HELOC against the property or a low LTV loan that doesn't require, you know, a full appraisal. You know, I mean, there's certain things that go into that piece of it. They get their cash and they disappear. And so now that new title policy is issued to the lender. So they're covered. It's issued to the new buyer. If they sell the property, they're covered. But the person that's left behind is the lawful homeowner, right? And, and it's their job and it's their duty to defend 
um, the fact that they're the lawful owners of that property. And so really we wanted to be able to solve that gap. How do you size the problem? Like how many deed fraud cases are being reported or do you believe are happening in today's market? So that's a good question. So without being in the industry, right? You do a couple of Google searches, you see a news article probably once a week, right? Now being in the space and you know having people now Google it, right? We did a lot of marketing with Meta, a lot of it with, with uh, Google Ads. So now you have people Googling it. Now I probably get one to two stories a day of various different people that attempt to do it, have been successful at doing it, um, and all of the things, you know, some of the little idiosyncrasies that I'm bringing up now are the people that have shared with me on how they're getting around some of the safeguards that they have in place today. Literally daily people are talking about it. So, okay. So thinking about protecting consumers, what role does title insurance play in protecting consumers from deed or title theft? The interesting about thing about title insurance is the contract is with the buyer, right? The buyer is paying for an owner's policy. The title insurance company is indemnifying any of the past transactions, right? And the lender, if they get an alta lender policy is covered under that same policy, right? So the current buyer or the new buyer, the one that was unsuspecting that it was a fraud and the lender are often covered by that title policy. The previous owner, right? Or the lawful owner of that property is not covered. They're not named on that insured policy. And so part of the, the complexity with what Equity Protect tried to shore up was creating what we call a public security lien that now puts an assertion there in the chain of title that requires a, an affirmative acknowledgement with a multi-factor authentication technology from the lawful owner. Now, having it being missed by that title company, that new title company, it now provides a claim or a lien for the, for the current or the legal homeowner to come back on that policy, right? So it kind of ties everything back together. But really what our intent is at the end of the day is uh, the title companies will see this lien on title. They'll know that, they're, that it's being, it's being um, um, overseen by this multi-factor authentication, which protects them at the end, right? They get permission from the lawful homeowner, um, and then you know they clear the lien. We provide a subordination agreement or termination agreement, and everybody's happy. Otherwise, we know ahead of time that fraud can't be that that, that you can't move forward with that fraud. Where today, uh, I don't know any other company or any other technology that physically prevents the fraud from happening. Everything else is you know alert and restoration efforts. We'll alert you that it has happened, and we'll help you restore it after the fact. And when you talked about the the path to how the crime is done, you talked about searching title records for homeowners that do not have a mortgage. So like, correct my... That's correct. Okay. So like the, the people that are at the most risk of fraud aren't at a point in their homeownership life cycle where they're likely to, to transact. So how do you... Like those people aren't talking to mortgage lenders. They're not talking to real estate brokers. Like, how, how do you how do you reach them? Like, what's like the the path toward consumer awareness? Right. So obviously, it's direct consumer. So there's a big uh, direct consumer vertical that we're pursuing. Um, but really, in addition to that, if you think about it, there are a tremendous amount of cash transactions that are happening today. Right. There's a tremendous amount of of effort that goes to marketing to the same people that are doing reverse mortgages, right? They're trying to talk to people that don't have mortgages as well. 
Um, and so there are different entry points within, within the industry that we're, that we're obviously trying to, to bring awareness to. But a big part of it also is just simply bring, bringing awareness to the people that are at risk and the ones that are that are not right, because right now people, you know, they enter, you know, it's their first time, they're a first time home buyer. They do an FHA transaction. They're at a ninety seven percent loan to value. They have nothing to worry about, right? Um, now, when the LTV starts to tickle that de- or trickle down, then they become more and more and more of a risk. In addition to that, if it's a non owner occupied property, investment property, as an example, they are also at a higher risk because. You know, a tenant gets a knock on the door. Hey, we're from, you know, XYZ appraisal company. You know, they're going to let them in. They're going to do their thing, right? Often they have no idea. And so um, without kind of telling you the secrets behind what the fraudsters are doing at the moment with that play or with that idea, um, you know, Airbnb and all the vacation rentals. I mean, there's certain spots that that these fraudsters are definitely targeting um, that, you know, there just needs to be a general consumer awareness of. Yeah. I mean, you talk about vacation rental, like the, the trend in vacation rentals, uh, often been buying, um, kind of away from the owner's, uh, location. So buying on other parts of the country, which, uh, definitely makes that increased, increasingly susceptible. You have to hit consumer awareness, but there's also some B2B angles. Let's talk through like industry awareness. So, um, it's all, it's clear that the homeowner can be impacted with, with deed theft or title theft. Um, what about the mortgage servicer or the owner of the mortgage-backed security? Like, how does how does risk flow through the ecosystem? So interesting, right? So an unintended benefit for the technology. So kind of going back to where I was in October versus where we are today, offering this directly to the consumer. Um, now imagine if we use the technology not for necessarily fraud prevention, but retention. And a way that we could perfect title, right? So with our notice of voluntary lien and convey or uh, uh, voluntary um, lien, right? Basically, what we do now is on the day that a transaction gets or, you know, a a purchase transaction happens, a loan funds, we record our notice to restrict voluntary conveyance. We now become a multi-factor authentication component. So the homeowner now knows just like a credit freeze, anytime somebody wants to modify title, it's a benefit for you. Not a fraud benefit, but it's a benefit, right? And so now you wait three, four, five years from now, and you decided that you want to refinance a property again in three to five years. What do we have? What have we done now during that period? We've made sure that there's no voluntary conveyances. We can also make sure on the day that you pull a request from us to see if the the lock has been compromised, we could run a fluid report quickly. We could do a LexisNexis report uh, involuntary lien and see if there's any involuntary liens, right? So more or less, we could almost immediately give you a title determination three, four, five, six years from now based off of of what they did when they originally purchased the property or their original takeout mortgage. Now, in addition to that, we could notify the servicer well ahead of time in the ecosystem. So right now, a lot of the servicers and lenders right now, they wait until a payoff happens before they'll try to contact the borrower and retain them to, to refinance them. So now imagine if when they reach out to us for the lock, for if the lock was compromised, we could tell them a week into the transaction, not at the end of the transaction. So they now have two or three weeks that they would have a competitive advantage to go back to that borrower and see if they could retain them. So there's different ways that the technology can be used that we're, that we're evaluating right now. Okay. So let's talk about like the, the, the economic model. So is the is consumer the ultimate payer or is there a path toward a, uh, a B2B value chain? Like where, where do you make money and who ends up, who pays for the service? 
So both, right? So um, the direct consumer play really is a direct consumer play. The consumer at the end of the day generally pays it. The cost, if you look at some of the competitors, which I believe our biggest competitor right now are the counties because they do it for free as an alert system, right? Which we strongly recommend people to use. So, so we, and we do, and, and after you get set up with us, it's only $99 a year, which is incomparable to kind of like the life locks and credit locks of the world. Right now, the business to business uh, idea really is a servicing play, right? So it's at a, it's a, at a much reduced lower cost to the lender itself. We've kind of, we've, we've more or less modeled out what a uh, retention ratio would look like, right? We have a current retention rate versus what a proposed retention rate would look like. And then we take a very small percentage, like one or 2% of what that value actually is back to the lender. Um, and, you know, we can spread that over the four, five, six, seven years. We've also been proposed, or there's also a proposal on the table with a title company, how the title company could now create a stickiness, a, distri- a distribution model so anytime somebody unlocks that title, they now have the ability to give it to an agent that, that they're approved with, right? So it kind of keeps everybody inside of the ecosystem. Um, so there's a couple different ways that we're evaluating, haven't really been sold on which way um, other than it just needs to be good for everybody. The, so from an entrepreneurial standpoint, there's an attractiveness to the business model that you're building a recurring revenue component to an industry that typically hasn't um, you know, focused too much on lifetime value of customer. Now, there's definitely been rhetoric about that of lenders wanting to have customers for life and realtors assuming that they um, you know, sold somebody a house once and now they have them for life, but the the metrics and the the analysis proves different. That people usually shop around and rarely go back to their lender or or real estate agent. Um, so there is a, you know, there's a there's a B2B story here on how equity protect could potentially be a tool, um, one that builds recurring revenue for you and your your partners, but potentially helps with a more a stronger, stickier customer for life scenario. Um, on the you mentioned like LifeLock, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, I believe LifeLock for for that whatever it is, hundred dollars a year, also comes with some guarantees in the case that there is a a um, a breach or somebody does have fraud committed against them. Um, does, does that is that part of the equity? protect product like yeah. what happens if someone gets so past have, the lock yeah so we have the same same protection so we have the same um policies that they have we have a million dollar coverage um up to a three million dollar so if you have multiple properties we'll cover up to three million dollars of it um again really what we're we're focused on is we're creating a lien where the new title policy has a duty to clear right so a lot of our um a lot of our mechanism is going to be, you know, restoring title, but also being able to go back to that new title company and saying, hey, there's a there's a legal lien that was on the property that you just simply overlooked, right? And so really being able to bring that title insurance component back into the fold with the legal owner, um, in addition to our E&O policy and our per transaction insurance that we offer just like LifeLock. Excellent. So Ryan, five months into a new venture as an entrepreneur, um, I imagine your, your sights are high and the goals are big. What, what things, what things have to happen? What has to be true for equity protect to be a success at the scale that, that you seek to achieve? Ah, uh, great question. So I think the things that have to be true is obviously people need to be made aware that the scam is easy. It is really easy to do. And it is a direct threat to home ownership today. 
um, in a way where if you really realize how easy it is, it's scary. I mean, every single property I own, I've done it. Everybody that I've talked to, I mean, obviously you start explaining the scam and how easy it is. I could open it up on my phone and do it within, you know, 10 minutes. In fact, one of the board members that I have today, you know, kind of skeptical, um, it's kind of same thing. How could it be that easy? Nobody's thought about it, right? Went to Coffee Bean, went to Southern California, went to Coffee Bean. Within 10 minutes, I had a deed. I had everything fully prepared, sent it over to him. And I said, hey, I could bring this into Santa Barbara and I could record it today if you like, right? I had a fake title number, you know, a fake escrow numbers on there. I transposed one of the digits so the deed would never show up at the title company. It looked like it was being recorded by a title company. I mean, it was incredible. And so, you know, you had a believer from that point forward. So I think it really is just consumer awareness that needs that needs to happen. Ryan, I love it. The conversation went from hunting and salted meats to real estate, <laughs> to entrepreneurship and M&A, innovation. Oh, you're speaking my love language, man. This has been fun. I really appreciate the All opportunity right, to meet you and learn more about the business that you're building today and the story that led to this point. Likewise. I appreciate the opportunity. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And a special thank you to our listeners that take the time to go to Apple Podcasts and provide a review on the show. I want to share some a quick glimpse into what some of our listeners have shared. James D44 let us know that this is a great series of hugely important information for any real estate professional. DC girl Kayla shared, this is a great housing podcast that provides a great variety of information and insights on all things housing. 10 out of 10 recommend. This type of feedback is so energizing and drives us forward to continue producing great interviews for you. Please take a minute to go to the Apple podcast app and let us know what you think. Have a great day.